just surround yourself with people who highlight the positives of what you're doing and leave the other stuff alone. Amen. Yeah. I need to replicate. I need like three more of you in my life and then I'll have like, (laughs) how do we just clone? Can we just clone ourselves? Yeah. Let's clone each other. Let's do it. Yeah. Sounds good. Hi, this is Sari, and you're listening to the Secret Art Project Podcast. Creativity, mental health, and spiritual health are deeply connected domains of life. After spending years working with rock stars and filmmakers, I decided to get a theology degree. And since then, I've been cultivating my own creative practice. Experience has convinced me that exercising creativity can help us realize who we're supposed to be and manifest a better world. So join me as we talk through the process, interview experts, and get a little weird along the way. Hi, hi, hello. Welcome back to Secret Art Project. The podcast. This is Sari. And it is good to be on week three. I sat here staring at my computer for a while because I was feeling some creative block with knowing what to talk about in my intro. I definitely have some cool factoids to tell you about what's going on in my life, but I wanted to think of some funny stories and say some clever things and say something wise and spiritual, and it wasn't coming. I have been taking improv. I'm in level two now of improv, which is still very basic, Um, but it feels like it's been a very, very, very healthy exercise for me. I might have brought this up on an earlier podcast. Apologies if I did, and I'm being redundant, but it's not like this podcast is so famous and everyone has listened to it already and has heard everything about my life. So in improv, there's this like, we do this back line, like everyone in the class stands in a line along the back of the stage and you do just montage, which is just like at a, a few people at a time will go forward and just do a scene. And you're like not supposed to leave people hanging too long. In fact, it's better to like cut someone off like other you edit other people's scenes. And usually people are like grateful for that. They're like, OK, I don't have to maintain, this, maintain the funny or the creativity for too long, you know. And it's best to like edit on a laugh line. Like when when someone says something really funny, you're like, okay, let's get out before, you know, quit while you're ahead. But anyway, so sometimes you just like, if you just hang out on the back line until you think of like a good idea, it's, it's terrible. (laughs) It's, but for one, it's probably not that great of an idea. And for another, you, you're like, you go, man, that idea is not good enough. I'm just going to, I'll wait till I think of something better. But if you just go out there and you do something just instinctual and they give you tools for this, like things that make a good scene is like, you know, maybe a big emotion or some physicality or you go up with someone and you just pick a relationship and that relationship gives you something to work with or an object, an imaginary object, stuff like that. So just get out there and just start flapping your arms and you say like, mom, why do you always make me flap my arms every Wednesday at three o'clock or whatever? And then it's like, then they have to say yes. And (laughs) anyway, so that's the approach I'm taking here, I guess. (laughs) Funny story, right? 
I am, despite how I sound, I've had the most thrilling week of crowdfunding. Today, as I'm recording this, it's been just hours over two weeks since I started crowdfunding. And I nearly have 100% of my funding goal. And never could have imagined that. I imagine getting a chunk of it in the beginning when I'm like working real hard and drumming up excitement. People are like, oh, that's cool. And then like a real slump and then a big push at the end. And that's usually how it goes. And I just, I don't know how to like make sense of it, like meaning wise or like how good it's gone. (laughs) And I'm like, do I go really like, I guess I can, I feel like I can choose. Do I go really sensible with it? Like, oh, well. Here's some new information. I had more social capital than I thought I did, or I underestimated the value of my idea. Or do I just be grateful? Do I just not even try to collect data about about the process? Um, I also, you know, I, I'm not really like an astrology person, but I am of two minds about nearly everything. I'm a Gemini. (laughs) So I do have a side of me that just wants to go full woo-woo with this. Like, it feels magical in my body, actually. Like, I feel lit up. Like, I feel as if I have, like, energy flowing towards me from the universe, affirming the that as I pursue something that I'm passionate about or that I love or that feels really aligned to use sort of a new age term, that like God or the universe or whatever, like affirms that. And everything feels possible right now. Everything. It's really cool. So yeah, as of this recording, I'm in the low 90s. So I'm really close. I'm really close. And I'll just say that, I mean, by the time you're listening to this, maybe I'll have hit 100% of my goal, which was $15,000. And it's funny because I had originally put in seventeen dollars on my crowdfunding campaign, which is kind of funny. Like, I put 17000 as a goal, and I got kind of spooked by some of the feedback that um, Seed and Spark gave me a reality check. Your network has to be this size if you think you can do that or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, you're right. I should just go for fifteen. Which is fine. Like, I think that was still, I still think that was the right move. But then, so once I hit that 15 goal, I'll announce what's called a stretch goal, which is a smaller amount that I will try to stretch to achieve uh, maybe five more, seven more, thousand more. And that is because making movies, as many of you know, is expensive. And what it was fundraising for was just production. And there's this whole thing called post production where you have to edit a movie. You have to color correct it. You have to sound design. You have to do special effects, which is in this movie, a very important piece that that looks legit and not cheesy. So it's not like I'm just like, oh, I met my goal too quick. Like, maybe I'll ask for more money or getting greedy or something. No, I mean, it's not like I was thinking 15 would cover everything ever, you know. So we can talk more about that later because it's not even happened yet. I still haven't reached my goal as of this recording. But but yeah, I'll probably go for a stretch goal. And that's really exciting that, you know, two weeks in of a 45-day campaign that that this is where I am. 
and part of the reason that happened is some really cool things. I had someone who I hadn't talked to in probably seven or eight years come in as a producer. And his name is Shaba, a.k.a. John Linton, who's an old music industry colleague. We used to share office space. Super good guy. Now he's based out in Nashville, like a lot of my music industry pals. And then on the associate producer level, I had Les Borsai pledge $1,000, which was really cool and very generous. And Les is another friend from the music industry. He's more like in the tech entrepreneurial world now, from what I can tell. And then a man named William Rush. William Rush, I don't know you, you're, but you're one of my heroes. Thank you so much. Came in at the associate producer level also. So I'll go ahead and do my shout outs real quick for those that pledged and clicked on an incentive that had a public recognition shout out. I'm just going to go through your names real quick. Here's your public recognition of and gratitude. And of course, for all those who donated and did not select an incentive, much gratitude to you too. I will just thank you anonymously, of course. You know who you are. But shout outs to Kristen Tideman, my beautiful friend, Mike and Robin Evans, without whom I would truly be dead, Josue D, Laird Edmond, Dr. Laird Edmond, Peter Parker, aka Travis Grant, Anita and Ethan, thank you so much, Conrad and Katie Martin, my wonderful cousins, Les Borsai, Herb Agner, old music industry pal also, Angie M.T. LaCroix, Christine Long Plotkin, Raymond Carr, our episode one guest, B, aka Brittany, my, my other wonderful cousin, John Shaba Linton, Abigail A, thank you, sweetheart, Keith Bellinger, Sue Green, love you guys, John Travis, blast from the past, wonderful guy, Jessica Littlefield, love you, Andrea Craybill, my former cohort member from, from seminary, incredible artist. Tessa Holland Jacobson, I've never met you, but I am 100% sure you are a delightful, glorious person. Say hi to Greg for me. George Minor, Caitlin Ference Saunders, Scott Macklin. And then, okay, listen to this badass list of philosophers slash theologians slash philosophical theologians. Dr. Aaron Kidd, Dr. Joanna Leidenhog, Dr. Kate Finley, Dr. Leah Robinson, all pledged this week. They are all awesome. Thank you so much to my academic pals. And adding to that list of academic pals, Jonathan Rutledge, a great guy and a theologian. Ziza and Seth Bauer, my longtime friends. I love you guys so much. And like I mentioned, my hero, a stranger, but not a stranger any longer, William Rush. Thank you to everyone who pledged this week. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about Masa Zargaron. Masa Zargaron, a.k.a. Omniflux, which she just sent me a video about how I've been saying Omniflux, probably because of all my theological baggage where you say omniscient or omnipotent, but it's Omniflux is her pseudonym for visual art and music. Anyway, she is a sculptor, an audiovisual artist, who she's cre she creates these giant sculptures. 
And it's all tied together. The sculpture series with her electronic music. And the theme is modern female mythology. And all these characters are going to have songs. And there's a literary component with stories. It's a big ambitious project. And her statues are so cool. They're like, they're massive. They're, they're beautiful and they're massive. And I made a very short little film about how she found her calling, which we talk about in this podcast episode. But if you want to see kind of a video version, it's only four minutes. And it's screening at the McMinnville Film, film Festival this, much with, this month, which will be the first time it's shown publicly. I'm really excited about that. I called that short in dreams. I'd ask who made these because we talk about how dreams led her to her vocation as a sculptor. But anyway, Masa Zargaran, a.k.a. Omniflux, her and I were set up on a blind friendship date. I had a mutual friend from L.A. who said, hey, you guys are both in Portland and Sari needs friends. So (laughs) we've become really good friends close since last year. And I just love being around her. She's immensely grounded and just has a very, I don't know, calming doesn't quite do it. Like this serene presence when I'm around her and when I'm talking with her. She's incredibly thoughtful. And she has thought so much about creativity and a creative process. She is like me that she gets obsessed with kind of self-improvement and trying to demand more of herself, which has its weaknesses at times. So I really enjoy talking to her. I think you'll enjoy listening to her. She has a lot of wisdom. I thought before we head into the interview, I would share a poem. I wrote it back in 2017. And I thought I would just read it so that we could have some art on the Secret Art Project podcast. If poetry is not your thing or it makes you feel weird, you can skip ahead maybe a minute or two into the the interview. So here we go. This one's called Feel Versus Real. What I feel and what is real are in the shower together. Very intimate. Are they married? Have they discussed if they want children and whether they will get a joint bank account or not? What I feel and what is real met online. They kissed on the first date and don't have time to talk about whether or not that was wise. What I feel and what is real, is like a ball and chain. A pirate and his wench and a beer stein have sentenced me to death at the bottom of the ocean. What I feel and what is real are stuck at border patrol after eloping last summer and time traveling to the Last Supper where they realized things were so bad that someone was going to have to die. Knock on the door because they're in the shower together and I see there is water flooding the hall. What I was going to say, oh yeah, this is, I noticed this was a fear that had gone undetected in Mm -hmm. me in a really, really long time. And I had all these great ideas for big projects that I wanted to do for as long as I can remember. And there would always be something stopping me from taking the actions that I know would make the big, big projects a success. And 
I always wondered why, why is that? And I had heard the notion of being afraid of success as a concept. And I always thought, that's ridiculous. Who is afraid of success? And then I, was it one year ago or was two years, it was January of, I think it was two years ago, that I finally realized, oh, I actually am terribly afraid of success because success equals a big life. Any of my projects succeeding means I have to do so many more things for, for each little victory that opens a whole new stage of life where I have to be available to more people. I have to travel more. I have to do things and get out of my comfortable cocoon. Like I can't have this like peaceful zen day-to-day life i just have to constantly be out and be gregarious and available and be away from this like grounded life that i Mm. have like in such a controlled way created for myself once i realized that i it was a big shift for me once i realized that because when you think about it on the surface success is not scary but when you realize, yeah, what does success actually look like in my day-to-day life? That can be scary. Yeah. Well, fear of failure, that is one thing. And that makes sense, especially if you're doing something creative. And the product is you. It's like your vulnerability, your yeah. your self-expression, right? So if, it's, mm-hmm. uh, if it ends up not being as good as you want it to be, or pe- people are very critical of it, it feels very personal and shameful. But then fear of success is an, a whole no- it's like a completely different beast that messes with your psychology mm-hmm. i wonder if it's something about the way that success has been modeled i wonder like people who you think of as successful who like model success in a very in a healthy way or something like that because i guess i feel like i've been noticing that i feel in order to deserve what I want, like I have to really kick my own ass and mm-hmm. of course, like working hard, whatever. But like, do you have to be a workaholic to succeed? Do you have to, yeah. can you have like a compartmentalized life where you're doing the things that you want to do? And I don't, know. I don't know. Is there such a thing as balance? There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A person that, as you're saying that, I was thinking of who has modeled the kind of success that resonates with me and, and I was just searching my brain and I realized Patty Smith is someone Ooh. who really models that really beautifully. When I, I've read all her books and she writes in like a journal memoir kind of style where she's retelling her day to day lives. And I was in this trip and she's just talking about, I was sitting at this coffee shop. I was writing. I sat in my hotel and I didn't leave my hotel for four days because I was binging this detective show for something and she's just um do you get you get an inside look into her life and you realize this is a legendary iconic successful person and she's just relishing in this in these small acts like just sitting down at a good coffee shop dipping her bread in olive oil (laughs) and that being enough for her Mm -hmm. day you know and and she's still she just turned 76 last week and she's still she's still touring like crazy it seems like someone who's working really hard but also is relaxed about it and is Mm -hmm. enjoying the ride along it's her her choice to be doing it yeah i just look at her as 
a really excellent model. I'm sure. I feel like I want to keep a list of women like that somewhere. <laughs> well, people, people in general, women in particular. People in general. Yeah. Cool. The one, especially someone who's doing that at seven six. I know. The other thing is opening yourself up to criticism, which I like this week. I, I was part of a conversation on a friend's podcast. And then I, I saw that someone in his private Facebook group commented on the episode that he, that this one person thought we sounded smug. Yes. Said you personally or you collectively? The collectively sounded the group. smug. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought, Oh my gosh, if I have my own podcast, when I have my own podcast, I could be like opening myself up to comments like that all the time. And at first I got bummed out about it. And then I thought it was like kind of funny. And then I was like, well, you know, (laughs) you want to be like, you don't want to be like, like the, 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 the immature response to criticism is like, well, fuck everyone who, you know, like you're not out here doing whatever. And you're not in the arena. You're not in the arena. Exactly. I was like resisting using that. You're not in the arena. But you want to be like open to criticism in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Just like dealing with that part of successes. Because everyone wants to be like known and loved. And I don't mm-hmm. know. It's hard to take. I don't know. Just strangers on the internet. Well, one thing that I've noticed that helps me a lot as far as just dealing with criticism is when I'm in phases of my life where I have really, really high output and I'm just like constantly in a playful mode and just making and making and making, I am kind of untouchable. Like no single thing has all this pressure attached to it because I'm not in this place of, I invested all of my resources into this one thing and now here I'm offering it to you as the public and please be gentle and good to me. But if you're just swinging and being playful it's you're in a totally different mental state everything i don't want to say everything means less but there is less riding on every one little thing you Lassie, know? you're so wise that is i think a really <laughs> wise yeah thought yeah and i noticed this in other artists as well who are legendary and famous i noticed how they respond in interviews to different things when they're in their really prolific stages of their life they just seem so easygoing and light like taylor swift at the moment seems so untouchable so impervious to people bullshit and she probably gets more bullshit than than most people online she also gets a lot of love but she's just been cranking things out left and right more than ever she was already prolific and she just seems so easy and light these days and that's that's just the current example and i've definitely experienced that in my own life too that's so cool will you just start like by telling me your story a little bit like that question of that creative biography when you knew what you wanted Mm -hmm. to do what forces pushed you in that direction Mm -hmm. okay multi-faceted question yes seeing in an official way my creative trajectory started when I went to architecture school. So I did that for a while, for three years. And I decided to take a tiny six-month break to because I was already writing songs at this point. I played music since childhood. And I had songs in me that I didn't know how to record. And I thought I was frustrated with that. And I want to learn how to record my own music as a hobby on the side of architecture. So I took a six-month break from architecture school to do this audio engineering course. And uh, 
And then I never went back to architecture. I just fell in so hard and loved it so much. And I fell in really hard with the people, with my peers, and just followed that, you know, that's, I don't know if it's a standard music industry trajectory, but my own version of it. I wrote music, I produced it, I performed it, I toured and as my own artist, but I also supported other musical projects as well. I toured with other bands and I did that for a very, very, very long time. And then I want to say in 2018, meanwhile, I still was somewhat nurturing my visual arts life. It no longer was architecture, but it was still like visual expressive work in different mediums. And in 2018, I did a big tour of my own music. And after the tour ended, I fell into, and you know, this coincided with releasing an album that I had spent years on. So I released the album, did a big tour, North America tour. And then all the things I was like revving up to launch, I came to the other side of it and fell into a pit of depression for, I don't know how many months, three, four months. And I did not know what was wrong with me. I just thought so many of my friends were so excited for me to have finally done these things. And uh, people were asking me like questions like how they can also do that themselves. And I was just totally miserable. In hindsight, I realized when you finish projects, it's when you're in a transitional state, it's really common to experience depression because you're just questioning. You don't have this next thing on your to-do list. You're like decompressed, but then you're just met with what is next. But the depression was not a standard depression. It was also, there was a lot of dissatisfaction. I realized, oh, I did it up the way that I had dreamed of doing it, but it felt so wrong in my body. Touring felt so not aligned with what I want my life to look like. It was, I got really sick on tour. It was just like the day-to-day physical toll was unmanageable unsustainable. And I thought, wow, this is what successful musicians do. The summer that I just had, this is what successful musicians do all the time, year round, every year. I had toured a lot before. This was not my first tour, but this was the first tour where it was my biggest tour and I was the boss and it was my project. I was not a supporting member of a big, Mm big tour. And then I realized So I started to have answers. It went from depression to I just realized how disenchanted I was with the music industry and how unsustainable it is for musicians to to support themselves with their art. And then I started having these dreams, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I started having art dreams, sculpture dreams. I was seeing big pieces of art in my dreams was going around in the dream, the whole dream, looking for who made this piece, who made this piece, giant sculptures. And at the end of the dream, someone would always tell me, what do you mean you made made that? You made that sculpture. And I just kept having these dreams, big paintings on the side of buildings. And they were always big. The scale was big. And I was in awe of them. It was just like a really, it was a visceral experience. I would wake up from these dreams and just feel so aligned with what was happening and then eventually 
the light bulb went off that, oh, I should do this. I should do this for real. This is not just my dream life. This can be my real life. I can make sculptures. And I had a, I hadn't, well, I had made one sculpture before, which I made for the cover of my album that I had released, but it was just to support the music. It wasn't like, I'm going to sculpt now. It was just a thing that I did. So then that, phase of my creative trajectory started and I have been sculpting since. So since 2019, I've been doing it for real, not just as, oh, this is a fun thing to do with my hands. I don't know if I can say that I have become, I have arrived at this place. Like, when did you know what you want to become? I don't think, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way as a thing I want to become. And it doesn't feel like I have become that thing. It's just a constantly evolving thing. And my attitude has for a long time been making for the sake of making. And that's just opened the doors for all these other mediums to do. I think it's kind of funny. You're like, well, I made a sculpture before, but that was for my album cover. I just, it's a thing I did. (laughs) (laughs) It just makes me think about like how if something comes so natural to you like that, because that's Mm -hmm. like what you were supposed to do next, it came naturally. You didn't almost didn't think of it like as a thing, but your imagination hadn't expanded around the idea of being like that being a vocation for you, like a being a sculptor. There was no identity attached to it. Like I'm going to now become a sculptor. I still don't think of it that way. And I think when you think of ventures in terms of identity, it can be so scary to to dare mm-hmm. to dip your toes in. Right. Um, <laughs> How many no. sculptures do you need to make before you're a sculptor? <laughs> How many movies I, do you have to I make before s- you're a filmmaker, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is I've heard this quote multiple reasons. I don't know the origin of mm-hmm. where this quote came from, but they say uh, don't be a noun, be a verb. So mm-hmm. You're not a sculptor, you sculpt. Mm-hmm. You're not a filmmaker, you make films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It feels like with the identities, like if you turn your location into an identity like that, there's like baggage connected to certain, oh, if I say this, then I must think I'm so cool because that I'm a, you know, a <laughs> filmmaker, a sculptor, whatever. And then you leave yourself open yeah. for, again, criticism, like for someone to say like, you're not a real, you know, I guess. You're not a real sculptor. Which is what we all feel inside anyway, right? Like the, the Oh, yes. Imposter. The imposter syndrome is so, yeah. so embedded, so deeply embedded. Yeah, I, I took this sculpting workshop recently and I was the only person attending the workshop who had previous sculpting experience and I had just kind of told the person running the workshop that I had experience but I didn't really say the extent of it I just went in and and the sculptor who was teaching this course at the end of the workshop said to everybody now don't go out there and call yourself a sculptor after making one sculpture in this workshop and I just thought oh that's so strange like he's holding this title uh, as this coveted hierarchical yeah. identity that you guys have also now made a sculpture but you haven't earned the right to call yourself a sculptor and i just thought that's a really rigid mm-hmm. way to look at to think about life and your totally. place as a live human when you were thinking about being an architect what did you know what kind of buildings you wanted to make or what kind of what did yeah. you, wanna, you did yeah yeah and it's interesting that now that I've been sculpting for a while, I have these flashes of 
just memories of childhood that when sculpting came up or I saw anything to do with people who are sculptors or something, it just was like, wow, like the skies opened kind of thing for me as a child. And I, it was this like rarefied romantic thing that was never going to be my life. I didn't have, I didn't know anybody who did it. And I didn't really go to museums and stuff as a kid, actually. It was just, I think in movies or something, it would be alluded to. I remember being really analytical about during my high school years being really analytical about choosing my profession like once I start college what am I going to do what am I what are my skills what am I good at what do I like and I took this class where you can kind of narrow down like you take all these tests to figure out what your abilities are and what you're good at what you want to do and I realized that I'm math and physics are were dominant subjects for me, but I was also a creative. So all the professions that were being highlighted for me were the things that kind of balanced those two worlds. And architecture came up and it was just really alluring prospect. And I just went, I thought, oh, this is amazing. It fits all the, it checks all the boxes. I was like thinking of it in an academic way, as a lot of people do when you're a kid and you're on that like regular standard school to college to job trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, the I kind just... of sculpt architecture models I was making were really co- high concept stuff. I was really into making the models, but less excited about drafting blueprints and things like that. I was yeah. good at it, but it was not really, not really fun. Like, and then you realize, oh, there's so much bureaucracy involved in the profession of architecture, just like getting designs passed by the city and all the stuff. I was like, I just want to make stuff. Can we do that? (laughs) So cool. So like fast forward today and you're doing it, but like now when you're doing it, do you still feel like really lit up about sculpting? What aspects of it make you feel the most joy? What factors? These are just different ways of saying the same kind of stuff, but like what factors contribute to you like really wanting to do the work? And what squashes that for you, you know? Okay, great, great questions. So the first part, as far as what lights me up, and then I'll get to the squashing Mm -hmm. bits. What lights me up, yes, I'm still 100% just so stoked to be doing this with my life. And I think the aspects of sculpting that make me feel that way are just how tactile it is. Our lives now in our modern day-to-day life we're so plugged into technology and with screens and everything. And it's this, unless you're a performance artist and use your body, we are living lives. Actually, that's not true. There's so many artisans who work with their body, but this is my particular medium. So just using my body is such a, such a gift. I feel so alive when I'm doing it. I think it takes like, sometimes it takes 30 minutes I'm in my studio and I start something until I just kind of tap into a state of just like being present and you're just physical. You're doing this thing that's just so physical. And if it if you're kind of struggling, if I am struggling, I just exaggerate my motions. It's kind of like a, it's kind of a dance and it's like rep- repetitive motions where you're engaging with this physical thing that's right in front of you. So if you're just taking an instant snapshot of each moment that you're doing it, it is that your the noise of the world of your troubles just going to dissolve and you're present with this thing. And if you look at a long arc, like the big picture, if you zoom out, why it feels good, it's that 
you can kind of just see the progression of all those moments that you chipped away at something and all the problem solving that you did along the way that, of course, not all of it is tactile and physical. You have to zoom out and do a lot of problem solving with sculpting. How do I, how do I make this actually stand up? And there's a lot of technical stuff. So it's not, it's not all fun. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash, like anything that yeah. sounds good. But when you zoom out over a long arc of building a body of work or even a single piece of work, you're, you just kind of see the progression of all the hours that you spent on something and what it ended up manifesting as. And that's really, that is the definition of meaningful work to be able to see the results of yeah. your labor. And then as far as what squashes, <laughs> I think keeping up a social media presence, honestly, is the thing that really, that's every profession. doesn't matter who you are. I'm sure even like social media influencers feel that way where that is their work. It feels really meaningless, really noisy. It's the opposite of being present. It's just thinking about what do people want to see as opposed to what do I want to experience. It becomes like you end up looking at yourself. Sometimes I'm sculpting and I think, oh, I should grab like behind the scenes footage of what I'm doing. So at the same time as me being present with this work, I have this eye on an audience who's not there at the moment, but might want to see this thing that would then translate to money somehow, a livelihood. And just constantly keeping this up. It's not like you do this once. It's like content creation, content. It's like one of my least favorite words of all time. It's just having to keep up this thing. It's uh, It really squashes my spirit. I don't want to say it doesn't squash my creativity. I have a lot more of that and it's just flowing, but it squashes my my mood, my spirit, and then seeing it just takes me out of like output mode and it puts me in input mode of what is the world giving to me about my work and what are other artists doing out in the world and just gets you to compare yourself with it. It's really unhealthy, <laughs> but we have to do it. I know it's like part of unfortunately. The job. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's part of the job. Yeah, it's true. I think I wanted to talk about the failure thing for a second. This question really stumped me. How did you frame it? Something about what's a failure you've had in your creative project that felt like a failure or creative or just failed. or didn't go as anticipated and how you dealt with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I my initial reaction was there isn't anything. And then <laughs> it dawned on me that, oh God, just like the whole fear of success was a thing that was a non-issue for me. And then I realized it's at the core of my lack of action or whatever. So with failure, this is a very recent realization that I've had that started sneaking up on me around October, late September, October. Now we're in January. And then finally, I think two weeks ago, it's just like, Bam, I'm here to say this problem that I just flashed to you, the little light bulb, now it's like the whole warehouse is lit up. And I realized this issue that I have been treating my art as a business and proudly. And it was something I was striving to do. 
for a long time. And it was always the goal to treat my art as a business. It is my business. It's not just my vocation. It's also my career. And then I realized in a big way that the way I've been treating it as a business is trying to make a livelihood from it, supplemental income that is just kind of feeding my practice, the larger bodies of work, pieces of work to sustain me, right? So I've been selling, making and selling little pieces of art that are not the center of my practice. They have nothing to do with sculpture. They're paintings and I make monthly postcards that I mail out my Patreon members and a lot of other stuff. It's like custom collage kits. And so I put a lot of love and effort and time and investment into these, all of these side art pieces. They're beautiful. And in my opinion, and not only the tangible physical time that I'm spending it on him, but then the emotional bandwidth that it takes, like everything that I'm observing, oh, this would be a good thing to do for my Patreon members. This would be a good thing to sell on my shop to supplement my big art practice. And I realized that it's taken over my big art practice. And it the percentage of time I spent on this stuff compared to the percentage of time I spent on my real central art is completely skewed. And I decided finally, I had thought about doing this in October, but I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I want to give up that stream of income. I felt scared and uncomfortable about that prospect, even though it's not a substantial part of my income. But I finally made the decision, I'm going to cut that stream of income out and only focus on the big works and focus on the big picture and the long-term big picture plans. And if I am to make money from my art, I want it to be from the art that I intend to make, the big pieces, not these like breadcrumbs that are lovely along the way and feed my soul in a way. But I'm just spinning so many plates in my life and we all are. So I decided this was a failure on my part to turn my art into a business and my expectations of it were so different what I had anticipated it would look like. I thought, oh, this would be an accountability thing where I'm always create, where I don't dip into episodes of depression. Like I have a group of people that I'm accountable to who are waiting for postcards and waiting for me to generate art constantly. And I thought, oh, this is a great way to constantly be generating art and stay active with my Mm -hmm. creativity but it ended up just taking me away from my central focus. Do you think of your creative practice as spiritual? Would you use that word? And what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would use that word in the sense that when I am working, when I'm creative, somehow it's always movement focused, whatever I'm doing, even if I'm making music, which is mostly on a computer and it's not this tactile work that I describe, but that sculpting is, I still get up. I have my headphones. I still get up out of my chair and I'm like moving and dancing, just like using my body while I'm making music. And in that sense, when your body's active like that, your ego just kind of dissolves and it can. It's nice when it does. And in that sense, it is the epitome of spirituality and spiritual work is that you are just a collection of particles that's 
cohesive and cooperating and moving in a certain way. And when you're in that state of mind, you just become so expansive and you don't think about the petty type of things, like the petty day-to-day human (laughs) dialogue that goes Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just all strips and you become injected with love when you're having a good session. It's not every day, but it happens. So yeah, it's super spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) You talk a lot about being like in tune with your body, connected to your body and movement. Has that always been the case for you? And is it, are you feel like there's times when you're not as in touch with your body? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there, well, I did dance when I was in high school, but it was not through a spiritual lens or sets of intentions. It was just a thing I did. And then when I was touring through my 20s and into my 30s as well, I'm still in my 30s. It was a part of my performance. I was using my body, but it wasn't through a spiritual lens at all. It was just part of my job. I loved it, but it was just a way to perform and having a presence on stage and all of that. But a friend of mine passed away in January of 2019. And the grief was just so monumental that after that happened, and this happened around the same time that I was going through my depression after releasing my album and touring, this all happened around the same time. And I just needed a lift, needed a major lift in out of, out of the pit that I was in. And I don't remember a singular moment, but I remember a series of moments that were concentrated into the same week or two where I just started moving my body. I would be like washing the dishes and I just like, it's like I needed to shed bad energy out of my body. And I just started to move my body in a different way, like walking around the kitchen, like It was surreal because it was like almost an out-of-body experience observing myself as if I'm an animal moving. I'm not, this is not normal human behavior. And I think my body, my insides, the internal self knew that this is what I needed to just like exercise, Mm. just the depression, the grief, all this stuff. This was very shortly after my friend passed away. So it was just my way of processing all this stuff. And it totally changed my life. And it's because it was such a concentrated time of grief and depression. I just knew what was happening with me. I wasn't like passive as it was happening. I was paying attention and aware that I was in this pit. Then this strange behavior that started popping up and I saw the shift that I had in my body and I just started dancing a lot. And it was dancing for different reasons. So ever since 2019, I would say I've had this relationship with movement and my body. And I'm not always in it. No, it's when I remember to be in it, I'm in it, but it's not my default mode of operation. Not at all. I'm disconnected from my body all the time and for long bouts of time. And then I remember, oh yeah, remember that whole walking thing? That makes you feel really good or dancing, like even simple motion, like walking. Well, that was before the OA came out, right? This <laughs> like was you, before the... Yeah. So when you saw that oh. part of the show... Oh, no, the OA did come out before come out because before. I watched the OA when I lived in 
LA, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, we both I don't know when show. the first season came. We both and, do love that show. Yeah. And if people don't know it, there's dance is a significant spiritual technology on the show. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's really amazing. Would you say it's your favorite show of all time? No, not my favorite show, but it's like definitely in the top, maybe the top five. Yeah. Top yeah. Five. It's up there. Top one for me, baby. Number one. It's number one. Yeah, number one. If Brett Marlene listens to this, it's my number one too. (laughs) It's it's really my number one. (laughs) I can't wait to see what the next show is like that they're making. Cool. Well, one thing I like to end with, I'm calling it what works for you. These sort of practices that help you out can be come another stressful like thing on my chest checklist or reason to shame mm-hmm. yourself or feel guilty mm-hmm, about not mm-hmm. doing them but it doesn't mm-hmm. even have to be like a daily practice just what sort of things sort of help maintain your health and your creative practice and it could even be like a book you read that you liked it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. you know like a meditation practice or anything but it could be what do you have a few of those mm-hmm. things like real just practical stuff yeah i do uh i i know i talked a lot about movement but journaling is probably my number one go-to as far as processing things and getting things out of my brain, whether it's to write down dreams, whether it's creative writing, or whether it's just stream of consciousness. I'm really overwhelmed right now, and I'm just pacing. My whole body is just buzzing with stressful energy. It's. I find that it takes me less time to translate that sensation into the act of journaling than to to go to movement. Movement for me still feels like a big to-do and I have to do it. Journaling, journaling used to feel like a thing that I had to do that I never felt like doing, but I, I've done it for so long. I started journaling seriously the first time I did the artist's way, you know, doing more. Oh, yeah, morning pages, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I was 21, 21. 22 when I started doing that and I was always skipping days I didn't want to do it it was always a thing on my to do but then I crossed a threshold at some point where now it's I just want to do it all the time like all if I'm somewhere and if I'm on my own time if I'm on vacation or something I could journal for five six seven hours and and love it I'll journal for an entire six-hour flight, eight-hour flight. I'll just write, 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 fill a notebook, go to the next. It just feels so cathartic and it just goes through so many different, it morphs, it just meets a lot of different needs. Like you're decompressing, you're emptying out your top of mind, conscious mind, and then you get to your subconscious mind. Then you come across ideas and you come across everything you know everything that's within your interpersonal relationships how you want to handle things differently sometimes you're making lists you're just sorting your brain organizing i'll sometimes set my alarm to not go past 45 minutes but then i get carried away and then i it's like my that's wild that's so cool i didn't know you were that hardcore i mean i know you journal i love it so much i just that's all i want to do and i have a yeah preference for like your kind of notebooks you use or anything like that Mm -hmm. is it just like anything will do kind of 
Yeah, I go back and forth with this, and I used to only do longhand writing, and then a couple of years ago, I started typing. Just I don't know why I wanted to figure something out. I just did it digitally, and I realized, as far as sorting goes, it's a really nice way to sort the contents of your brain if you're doing it digitally. Because if it's like, oh, I got to pick up oat milk from the store. I could just go down to the paragraph that's my grocery list and then go back to the paragraph where I was writing about whatever. And then you can sort really easily and then you can actually read your handwriting, you know, because it's typed. But then recently I was on a trip and I went to, I just had this weird need to pick up a fountain pen for myself. And I went to the shop and I picked up a fountain pen. I spent like hour and a half with this woman at this counter and picked my perfect fountain pen. And so this fountain pen has reinvigorated my desire to write longhand again. So I've taken my notebooks out of out of, out of my drawers and I'm using them again. So I like both. I like I like writing on in notebooks that don't have lines because sometimes there's drawings on writing if I need to describe a dream or if I'm thinking of a sculpture design or whatever. If Whatever it is, if it has a visual element, I'll just do a quick sketch of it and then carry on. I got high off of mushrooms once and I wrote. I was journaling the entire time I was high. And I started writing so big, like one word per page. Like it started with, you know, just slightly smaller, I mean, bigger font. And Mm -hmm. as the trip got, I went down deeper. I just started writing so big and... I was just so upset by the fact that we write so small. Why do we write so small? We're just so restricted. We're just always trying to get boxed in. And I thought, from now on, I'm going to write big. And I was just like, one word per page. And I was just like ripping through one notebook after another. And uh, after that, I realized, oh, I really like notebooks that have blank, that, that have plain pages, no lines. Really prefer that. You're going to go through them quickly. Whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like still journal sometimes on the computer just because you can go so fast when you're typing. Then, But Mm -hmm. if it's like really personal, I find I like to do it. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm trying to sort something out that's more like internal, like Mm -hmm. how I feel about something or whatever, it seems like handwriting works better for me. But yeah. Anything else like yeah, that? Yeah, the book that I was going to mention was Virginia Woolf's A Room of Her Own. A Room of One's Own? What is the exact title? A Room of One's Own, no matter your gender. Yeah, so there was a concept in this book that completely shifted my identity and the way I go through life. She talks about this notion of creating from a place of androgyny and shedding your identities. So you're not a woman who's writing. You're not a woman who's making whatever kind of art that you're making. You are an entity that's creating something. Your gender, your socioeconomical background, none of that has anything to do with what you're making. What you're doing is you're cre- you're engaging with a creative force and you're bringing it into life. It has nothing to do with you. You are making yourself open enough to engage with something that is out there and the place you have to shed all of your identities and all of your notions of what you know what you think you know about life 
to create real art. And uh, she's using examples of the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen and different authors, not just women, Shakespeare and different people who write from a place of androgyny. And she talks about Shakespeare as one of those people who writes is an androgynous writer. Uh The book, of course, having your own space, of course, is the central theme. But she talks a lot about all of these ways that women are oppressed and all the obstacles that we have to get out of the way in order to be able to have the time, space, and resources to create. And this results in a lot of frustration and anxiety and anger, frankly. And so you're creating from a place of all of those things, from a place of frustration and anger, and you're just mad at the world. And so your art just has this cloud over it. And, and she was saying, you have to get that stuff out. You have to write so much and make, create so much to get the angry art out of your system, to get away from such and such woman with this background, making this art, getting away from that to becoming this entity who's engaging with this energy and creating that. And that has to be an identity-free, gender-free entity to... to make that art and it's after I read this it's not the central idea of the book but it was the page or two pages that spoke with me the most and I think about all the time it just really shifted how I make art I was I never made art from like a biographical place beforehand but this really shifted oh I'm not a woman who is making I'm just I am also an entity engaging with another entity Wow. So that really resonated with you when you read that. Yeah. 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 And thinking about that is really, really helpful. Yeah. That's, I mean, I guess I wonder if that's, it's, it's a lot to chew on. I feel like I haven't read the book, so Mm -hmm. I probably should. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But like, I guess I found myself thinking while you're talking, like, is that possible to get to that place, like that pure place where you're kind of just like channeling something and without without like a sort of un in this unfiltered way that is sets aside a lot of lived experience or mm. emotion yeah i'm just yeah in, is it intrigued. possible is it can i do possible? it <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah. possible it is well, and especially because right now oh uh, yeah yeah I, yeah i i yeah i get it in a sense and especially now, like right now, there's such a push towards like diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. in the arts. And you feel sort of a pressure to like tell a woman's story, like these stories that haven't been told before. I'm just sort of thinking out loud. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I think I think what you're saying is hugely important. It's it's a part of the things that we need to do to lift women up in in the commercial world and in in the Mm -hmm. commercial art world, which is the film industry, the music industry. Mm -hmm. And I think the narrative, the stories that are being portrayed will do some of that lifting. Another part of the lifting is going to happen by women who are uninhibited and create from a place of just unleashing and just... Mm -hmm displaying that example over and over again and just showing really powerful work and come and say, instead of saying, 
as a woman, I thought it was important to blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I understand that and I do that. And also it's important to show up and present a powerful piece of work that is not attached to any identities. I think both are hugely important and both yes. need to happen. Yes. And I think presenting your work and showing your work as a woman is going to do a lot more for how people perceive what women are capable of as opposed to talking about it. Do I think we should stop talking about it? We should definitely still talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. I was also conflating sort of the commercial exhibition of work yeah. and yeah. like the artist private practice. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. which is what you were talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. Once again, yeah. that... Yes, uh, and capitalism boogeyman in the background. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> making me complete things. Like, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, and you're you're going down the venture of you know bringing a sci-fi film into the world, and uh, it's really exciting. <laughs> and it's it's exactly what we're talking about as far as just presenting in an uninhibited way. I want to say I think it's important to surround yourself with people who who lift you up. And don't pick your stuff apart. I think this was in one of your earlier questions about people that were your champions along the way. And this kind of came up that you don't have to have this giant mentor that's kind of bringing you along the way. Just having people who are, I think it took me into my 30s to find people who are champions in in those small, subtle ways. When you're showing somebody a piece of your, your work, they're not, and you know, if you're an artist, it's likely that you are in the circle of other artists, people who are extremely capable and competitive because it's a, it's a tough business to thrive in. So the default mode can be coming from a place of jealousy or just being competitive. So this happens, this has happened a lot in my life where I'm showing a piece of my work instead of encouragement, I'm met with jealousy or met with just like a competitive undertone like the person's looking at the work and thinking I could do that too and as opposed to appreciating the the fact that somebody did something and there's room for all of us to be making endless things endless pieces of art and my success doesn't take away from anybody else's success And I think I lived in LA for a long time and that bubble felt very much competitive limit- and limiting in yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I have just become, I kind of zeroed in on what I need from friends and I finally zeroed in on, oh, these are aspects of people's personalities that really drags me down as an artist. And it's important to be around people who are creating a lot and have high outcomes and have the room to appreciate other people who are making art and they can be encouraging and lift you up for the things that you're making even if it's outside of their taste. I need to replicate. I need like three more of you in my life and then I'll have like a... <laughs> How do we just clone? Can we just clone ourselves? Yeah, let's clone each other. Let's do it. Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you. I, I love really your questions. It. That's today's episode, folks. Remember that this episode's brought to you by winemakermovie.com. That's winemakermovie.com. 
You can visit that site to follow along on the journey of the film. It's funding to production, to post-production, to release and screenings. You can go to winemakermovie.com and hit follow for that. You can also, of course, pledge or share about it with either social media or just someone you know who you think would super vibe on the project. That's winemakermovie.com. And if you ever want to ask a question to me or to one of my guests, you can use speakpipe.com slash secretartproject, or you can just email me at sari at secretartproject.com. My intro music is brought to you by Omniflex. The song's called Lawless Flawless. Thank you to Omniflex for letting me use that song. And until next time, folks, keep working on your secret art projects. Do 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 do